Let's be honest. All of us are on this list, or we have been on the list in some way. And the Bible says if you've broken one commandment, you've broken them all. And that is why all of us need to know that Jesus died for all of us. And that is why when we read this from Paul, it doesn't put us in a self-righteous posture of judging others with hatred and making them feel bad. That's not what he's talking about. It is recognizing, I used to be that way. I used to be caught up in sin. I used to be like that. I was in the mud. I was a mess, but Jesus saved me. And He can do the same for you. And if you keep down this path, it leads to destruction. And I love you so much. I don't want you to go there. Hello and welcome to the Love Key Church podcast, where we share our church's message of the week. My name is Heinz Winkler, and together with my wife, children, and our leadership team, we host Love Key Church here in Somerset West, online, and on this podcast. It is our mission to help you to encounter God, align with His purposes, reign in life, and help others to do the same. We trust that you will find this message empowering, encouraging, and inspiring. Please share it with your friends and family and write a review for us. And a huge thank you goes out to those who have already done so. May you be thoroughly blessed as you listen to this message. Oh, it's good to be in the presence of God. It's good to be with family. I'm so grateful. We are busy with a series called Light in the Darkness. And I really believe that God wants to lead us and show us what does it mean? What does it mean for us to be the light in the darkness of this world, in the brokenness of this world? And today's message is called judge. You know that, that word that you guys love so much? That doesn't bring any awkwardness. And you know, We're going to talk about the word judge. I want to remind us of our series scriptures. Isaiah 60 verse 1 to 3. And I want you to receive this. I want you to hear this with your spirit man. Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Matthew 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city is set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify you? No. Glorify your Father in heaven. Amen? Great. We're busy with this series through the books of Corinthians. And I wanted to show you a picture of an artist's depiction of what the city of Corinth probably looked like. And then we have a picture of what that area looks like today. It's a bit different. So this is the story of, not story, the letter of Paul to the people of the church in Corinth. And we are taking a journey through these chapters. And what what I felt God has showed us to do is to take a couple of chapters at at a time and to link it with a well-known story in the Bible. Last week, the message was called Influence. And the And we looked at the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, and we looked at the story of Noah. And God connected that in a quite an amazing way. Today, we are going to look at the next few chapters of Corinthians, and we're going to look at the story of Jonah. Who thinks they know the story of Jonah very well? All right. I think all of us will be a bit surprised today. Strap in. Be ready. God's going to do something amazing today. Hallelujah. What does it mean to judge? What does it mean? 
The dictionary says it is to form an opinion or conclusion about someone or something based on the information you have. So to judge is to have an opinion, to form an opinion or a conclusion based on only the information you have at hand. And we typically make it about a person. If you have done or will do my wife's essay image course in the future, you will learn that we as human beings form a first impression of another person in one and a half seconds. Within one and a half seconds of seeing someone, the way they dress, the way they carry themselves, you have jumped to a lot of conclusions which form your judgment of them, your opinion of them. How many of you have jumped to conclusions about people on a first impression and later realized, ish, I was wrong? That happens, right? But it's hard to get away from that. They say you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. And it takes time to actually change that original one. Um, have you ever wrongly accused someone based because you made and you formed an opinion or a conclusion based on the evidence you have? I have heard that it's possible to be at a restaurant and think your phone is missing and immediately blame the waiter, but then later find it in your pocket or in your somewhere else. We have made a judgment on a person we don't even know with the information we have, but also the background we have and the things that have influenced us. How many of you have correctly accused someone of something? <laughs> but more serious, how many of you have been the victim of a wrong and hurtful opinion someone formed about you or jump, and then they led others to jump on the bandwagon, and you had no chance to explain yourself, or, and it led to a form of bullying. Anyone? Okay. On another level, how many of you think that our country's justice system is actually just, and is run in a righteous way? Anyone? Why are you laughing? We have judges who judge cases on a daily basis. We have police officers who make judgment calls in the moment. And then there are consequences according to our legal system. Do you think it's just? Do you think it's righteous? How many of you trust our legal system? For those online, not one hand went up. <laughs> We are going to look at 1 Corinthians from chapter 4 to 6 and the story of Jonah. And we will look at different types of judgments that we can have as people. And we're going to see how we can learn from what Paul wrote and what we know about Jonah in order for us to be the most effective light in the darkness we can be. Because when we judge incorrectly, we are part of the darkness. But when we judge correctly, we are the light. Does that make sense? All right. So we're going to jump into these chapters. And I need to, especially for our guests, I need to just explain to you that we're a Bible-believing church. That means we believe the Word of God is the infallible Word of God. It means that we don't pick and choose what we believe it means that we take it as it is. And if we are uncomfortable with what we read, it doesn't mean God is wrong. It means we need to grow. So some of these verses are difficult to read. Some of these verses will challenge. Some of these verses might offend. And I'm not giving you my opinion today. My opinion means nothing. What does mean something is the Word of God. So as we go into this journey, I want to ask you to not listen to Heinz, but to listen to the Word of God, and then you have a decision to make. Do I believe the Word of God? 
or do I believe in my feelings and other people's opinions and judgments more than the Word of God? That is the question. Okay? Even though I say that, I probably will still get emails. All right. There are different kinds of judgments that we find in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. And we're going to go through them and I'm going to try to break this open to you. And I want you to... What the Bible does many times is it holds up a standard and a mirror. And we need to look into that mirror intently and go, all right, is this applicable to me? If yes, how do I change? This is not a moment to be the passive-aggressive Christian that reads this and goes, yes, this applies to someone I know. (laughs) You know how you do that? I heard this sermon. It's really great. I think you should listen to it. It's going to change your life. Or when we do the marriage seminar and you see the wife go to the, to the husband like, yes, you should hear this. Meantime, the wife probably needs to also look in the biblical mirror. All right. So the first type of judgment that we get in chapter 4 is the judging your leaders and that judgment leading to factions or divisions. And it also talks about whether leaders should be judged by the people they lead or whether they should be judged by God and the fellow leaders they have. 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to get stuck into the Word. Are you ready? Are you ready for the Word of God? Five of you. All right. I'll work on the rest. So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ. This is Paul speaking to the church of Corinth. Look at me and Apollos as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. He's saying to them, don't judge me on how I look and how I speak. In the previous chapter, he's been talking about that. The the Corinthians have a certain impression of Paul. And he's saying to them, don't look at me that way. Look at me this way. I'm a servant of Christ, and I'm in charge of explaining God's mysteries. This is how you should judge me. You following? Okay. Now, a person who is put in charge is a manager. Other translation says he's a steward, and a steward must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or any human authority. Another translation says, it matters little to me how I am judged by you or any human court. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. There's also a lesson in that little sentence. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring out darker secrets to light. And will reveal our private motives. Who's excited about that? One of my biggest fears as a, as a young person was that someone will be able to broadcast my thoughts on a screen. It's like, don't do it, no. <laughs> may, may that never happen. Oh. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. He will measure your life and he will praise where praise is due. Dear brothers and sisters, I've used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I've quoted from the Scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. Because that's what they were doing. They were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, some of them said. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, including your leaders, why boast as though it were not a gift? I'm going to jump down to verse 14. I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you only have one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ, Jesus, when I preached the good news to you. When you heard the good news from me and I I walked with you, I became your spiritual father. So I urge you to imitate me. Look at my life and imitate me. Many people want to go, no, you have to imitate Christ. Yeah, okay. But when, when you are led by a proper leader, you have to start by imitating them as they are imitating Christ. And here he's saying to them, 
You are so below the bar. <laughs> Just start by imitating me. And then we can work our way up from there. Because in another scripture, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But he just, here he just says, imitate me. So what's, what's he doing in this, in this piece of scripture? I believe he's saying to them that you are judging us as your leaders and we are sent by God. In this role as your leaders, it's not your place to judge us. It is God's place to judge us. So don't judge these things that has to do with leadership from a, those are being led towards the leaders. God will sort us out and we will sort each other out. Can you see that? All right, are we in agreement? The second judgment we find is Paul talking about sexual immorality in their midst. He says, who you should be judging, you are not judging. So he actually starts by saying, okay, you're judging me. I'm telling you, that's not the right thing to do, all right? There's someone in your midst that you should be judging, and you're not. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 to 2 and verse 6. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even pagans don't do. So the sinfulness is so bad, it's worse than what even the pagans in that city would do. And they were bad. They were completely godless. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmom. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? And he goes on. And then we get our next form of judgment. And then he makes a distinction. So first he says, don't judge us as leaders. That's for God and for us. And now he's saying, what you should be judging, you're not judging. And then he says to them, who you shouldn't be judging, and you are, is the next one. So they are judging people in the world for living the pagan lifestyle. And he says to them, you're actually not supposed to judge them. Listen to this. And this is where many, many people and many Christians get tripped up. How many of you have heard this say, don't judge me. Don't you judge me. God will judge me. And, and it's nice to quote that as if you're Paul. God will judge me. Don't judge me before the time is right. But that's a misuse of that context. When you are living in sin, clearly, and practicing it, and like Paul, in another book, he says, when someone, one of the brothers are living in sin, what does he say? Go to him and talk to him. If he doesn't want to listen, take another. If he doesn't want to listen, take another. If he still doesn't listen, then there's more consequences. So, but he, is, he can see that in this situation, they've just let this guy do what he wants. And he's living willfully in sin and then doing nothing about it. Can you see that? You look very uncomfortable. Is this, is this hard to read? This is in the Bible. God said we should read it, so we are reading it. And we are learning from it. Amen? All right. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge. There's the word, indulge. People who have given over. Indulge in sexual sin. But I was talking about I, was, I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are. Now he adds to the list. It's not just sexual immorality. It's also who are greedy, who are cheating people, and who are worshiping idols. I didn't tell you to not associate with them if they are in the world. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. How many of you know that's true? I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin or greedy or worshiping idols or is abusive, a drunkard or cheats people. Now he adds to the list. <laughs> Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. <gasps> what? 
Are that in the Bible? Yes, it are. Do you believe it or do you not believe it? Do you read it and hear it and go, yes, but? Then you are not in line with the Word of God. And you're trying to find a way to please your flesh. Or the brother in your life or the sister in your life that you know is living in sin, but you want to forgive them and you want to make sure that they're okay. I'm going to get into that just now. God will judge those on the outside. Outside of what? The church. God will judge them. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. All right. Now, obviously, this has a dangerous side. Where if you take that and you decide to just, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and we throw everybody out of the church and then there's no one left. That's not what Paul is saying. Because we have to read the Bible in context and we have to see all of the values of the Bible, which is God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son so that you don't have to live in sin. And by his grace, you can be free. But now he's speaking to a church with whom he's been journeying for a while. I told you last week, he had a lot of trouble with this church. This wasn't the first time. This 1 Corinthians was also not his first letter to them. This is the first letter that we have. The scholars say that his first letter was a very emotional, very heated one. And very short. And that's probably the one that he's referring to where he says, In a previous letter, I told you to not associate with the sexually immoral. What I meant was... He's referring to that letter. So he's clarifying now. He's probably calmed down a bit. And he's now clarifying. This is what I meant. All right? So we are reading this. So what is he not saying and what am I not saying? I'm not saying we're going to go around and judge each other and throw each other out of church. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we should take heed of this. And if we have a brother or a sister in our midst who are indulging in these sins that he mentions, to the extent that there's so much damage and they seem to not care about what anyone says and they are on a destructive path, we have to get to a point after we've tried to love them back into the fold, of course, we have to get to a point where we say, listen, this, we need to actually remove you from this fellowship because it's more damaging to have you here because you, he says it, they will influence, they're like yeast, bad yeast that influences the whole uh, loaf of bread. And we can't let that happen. Does that make sense? I know it's uncomfortable to read these things and you would probably want me to just read, you know, Jeremiah, I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. But that was also done just before they went into 70 years of Babylon because they were sinning. That prophecy was for when you get out of the 70 years. Why did they go? Because they sinned. What I'm doing right now, reading these scriptures and talking about it, is very unpopular. Why? Because your flesh is uncomfortable right now. It's like, Can I, can't I rather have some honey on my ear, please? Will you grow when you come here and hear exactly what you want every week? No. You won't grow. All right. The next judgment who you are letting be judged by the world and shouldn't, ourselves and each other. He's talking to them because what they were doing is they were suing each other, Christians. And then they go to a worldly court and they let what? The world decide what should happen between two believers. Listen to what he says. When one of you has a dispute with another believer... How dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? What? We will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have a legal dispute about such matters, why go out to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I'm saying this to shame you. <laughs> in the previous one, he said to this, I don't say this to your shame. I say this as a warning. Here he says, 
I do say this to your shame. Why are you doing this? I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in, this, in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? Isn't there one person that can decide these difficult issues? But instead, one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers. You guys know Jesus' prayer in John 17. Jesus prays earnestly to the Father. And he says, Father, let my disciples and those who come after them, let them be one as you and I are one. Then the world will know that you sent me. He says it twice. The unity of the body of Christ is one of our biggest evangelistic tools. When the world looks at us and sees we are united and nothing can stop us, they go, Jesus must have come. But when they look at us as they say division, they go, this God can't be real that you say you're serving. And this is exactly what they're doing. Believers are disputing with one another in front of unbelievers. It's unbelievable. But they don't see it. Listen to this statement. Why not let yourself be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. What's he doing now? He says, okay, I recognize there's a reason why there's a case in the first place. One of you did something wrong to another. That's not right. Don't cheat each other. Don't do these things to one another. So he's talking to the one who caused the trouble in the first place, but he's also talking to the one who is now reacting by going to court. Saying, you're both wrong. Rather be cheated. What? But that's not right. I have this overdeveloped sense of righteousness and what I deserve. How can I just let that happen? For you have died and Christ is risen in you. So are you really being cheated? He's not saying roll over and be abused. He's saying in these matters, what is better? Have a bigger vision. Your little dispute or the unity of the body of Christ. Your little fight with another Christian or giving a good, uh, showing the world, the unbelievers that we are united in Christ. What is more important? He's not saying it's okay to be cheated. He's saying it's better to be cheated than to damage the role of the church. It's better to be cheated than to let your light not shine in the darkness. Are you following me? Now, we're going to get into a very unpopular piece of scripture. Are you ready? The unrighteous are judged by God and their sentence is to not inherit the kingdom of God. So now we're talking about God's judgment. The unrighteous are judged by God. And Paul makes this very clear. But contrasting the judgment that we deserve as unrighteous people is put aside by Jesus. Is put aside by what he did on the cross. Through Jesus, he says, we are washed, sanctified, and justified. But he first has to lay it out and show you what it means to be unrighteous. So that you can know what you are saved from. Otherwise, we'll just keep, being on, keep on being unrighteous. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. I want you to open up your eyes and read this list. The whole list. Let not one of them stand out for you as more important or more significant than the other. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. <laughs> you guys used to be like this. But you are washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
Do you notice that most of the sins on this list are of a sexual nature? Remember how we spoke last week, who is influencing whom? Are we being more influenced by the world or are we having more of an influence on the world? And the city that they are living in is a very pagan city and sexual immorality is rife. So many of the things he's listing is that. And, and he's also just spoke to them about this one guy who committed that act with his stepmom. And, and he's, so he's showing them this is not who you are. When you are in Christ, when you are washed, when you are sanctified, when you are redeemed, it's not who you are. You don't do these things anymore. Can you see that? In this one chapter, he's saying that we should judge the sexually immoral person and push them out. That we shouldn't judge people in the world who do these things, but that God will judge them. But then he says that God does judge these specific sins in the sense that people who are unrighteous, who practice these things, who indulge in these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, many people in the world who hear this or see people quoted are very offended. But most of the offended do not believe in God. If a Christian says this and lists those things, the world is offended. But they don't believe that there is a kingdom of God. So why are you offended that I say you won't inherit it according to the word of God? There's no God. There's no kingdom of heaven. Okay, but you get very up in arms when I say that people that do these things won't inherit it. If you get upset about something that you don't believe in, I have to ask the question. Could it perhaps be that the truth is trying to set you free? What we also need to note on this sensitive subject is many people who call themselves Christians and consider themselves to be part of Christ Jesus, they are also offended by the scripture. And of course, the most sensitive part is the sodomy and homosexuality because we have been systematically and forcefully desensitized over the last few decades to just accept that people are born this way. And that they and their lifestyle should just be accepted. And if you don't accept it, you will be called names. It has been systematically forced down our throats. What if all people, and especially Christians, applied the same logic and principle? That they are born this way and that there's no other way but to accept it, even to celebrate it, and even worse, to be proud of it. Of course, pride is God's favorite thing. I'm saying that sarcastically. But imagine I were to say, my name is Heinz and I'm a fornicator. I was born this way, so just accept me the way I am. Otherwise, you are a fornophobe. <laughs> or, hello, my name is Heinz and I'm an abuser I was born that way, and you just need to accept it, otherwise you are an abuserphobe. I can go on. It's insanity. The great news I have for anyone who believes that they were born a certain way, and that there's nothing that can be done, that in Christ you can be born again. And become a new creation. If I followed the logic of the world and some people who call themselves Christians, I would just accept the fact that I struggle with lust and I struggle with pornography and I, I will always sleep around. And I will just be that guy and you just have to accept me. Because it's on the same list. If you lie and cheat and abuse and you just say, that's just who I am, it's my personality, it's the way I was born, just accept me the way I am. How would people react to that? But there's one word in the whole list we take out of context and say, no, this one's different. It's not. But what many culture and non-born non -born again Christians do not realize is if they, are, if they are not born again, two things will happen. You will not be justified and saved and you will not be heading to the kingdom of God. And secondly, you will not host the Holy Ghost, who empowers you to not sin and to live a holy life. 
So sin keeps a hold on you and your efforts to not sin are futile and frustrating and eventually you give up and ignore passages like this and just live like a cultural, religious, as long as I tick the box of going to church kind of Christian. Let us look at other things on the list. Idolaters. What is an idolater? It pretty much includes everything on the list. Because someone who is an idolater worships something other than God. And if some, anything is more important or as important to you as God should be, you are an idolater. And you worship money or you worship your career or you worship your children, or you worship your husband, you can have many kinds of idols. Yes, but that's just how I was born. Be born again. Let's look at adultery. That's on the list. What is adultery? It's when you are married, or someone else is married, and you have sexual relations. You've committed adultery. But what did Jesus say? He said, Moses told you that you shall not commit adultery. But I say that if a man looks lustfully upon a woman, he has already committed adultery in his heart. The bar is there. It's impossible. It's impossible in our own strength. Have you committed adultery? Yes, but that's just the way I am. I'm just human. Get born again, then you are supernatural. What about fornicators? Are you having sex before marriage? Then you are a fornicator. Did you have sex before marriage? And you're sitting here and you have some kind of trouble in your marriage. Repent before God. Repent before your spouse and make right. I have multiple testimonies of where I walked a path with, a couple, with couples. And that's what they did. And they got healing. They were not free. Living in fornication. They were not. They were bound and they didn't know why. And when I showed them the light of the word of God that says this is not who you're supposed to be. And they accepted it, humbled themselves and repented before God and repented to each other and forgave each other. Whole new world opened up for them. Yes, but you know, this is just how I was born. I've got good news for you. You can be born again. I'm going to keep saying it because apparently some people don't know it. Are you verbally abusive? Are you physically abusive? You're on the list. Do you cheat in your business? Do you cut corners? Do you take bribes or give bribes to get what you want? Have you decided that, oh, the system is broken, so I'll just be part of the broken system? This is just the way it is. This is just the way I was born. This is the way I can do be born again. Let's be honest. All of us are on this list. Or we have been on the list in some way. And the Bible says if you've broken one commandment, you've broken them all. And that is why all of us need to know that Jesus died for all of us. And that is why when we read this from Paul, it doesn't put us on a, in a self-righteous posture of judging others with hatred and making them feel bad. That's not what he's talking about. It is recognizing, I used to be that way. I used to be caught up in sin. I used to be like that. I was in the mud. I was a mess. But Jesus saved me. And he can do the same for you. And if you keep down this path, it leads to destruction. And I love you so much. I don't want you to go there. Can you guys see that? Why are we talking about this in this series, Light in the Darkness? Because it's in the Bible. And more specifically, it's part of the book we are reading. But also, for us to truly be light in the darkness, we need to know what darkness is. And we need to know what light is. I'll be the light in the darkness. Okay, but define light. Define darkness. Some people think it's what Star Wars says. He is from the dark side. And he's from the light. And, uh, and we think that is, 
Can you see from your childhood, through all the stories that you've watched, the world is actually obsessed with light and darkness, good and evil. It's obsessed with it. But it doesn't know what the lines are unless it goes to the Word of God. We as the church need to know actually what is dark and what is light. Just imagine walking into a room and the light is on. And you're like, cool, I can see what's going on here. The light is on. And someone else coming in behind you and they switch it off. They go like, and they switch it off and they go, ah, now I can see. And you're like, it's pitch dark in here. Yes, but I can see now. That is what you do when you favor darkness above light. That is what you do when you take something that is dark and you put a light sticker on it. At the gym that I'm at, they've got a switch that has no function. They jokingly call it the motivation switch. When they switch it on, everybody's motivated. This is a little joke. But when you switch that light and you think the light's going to go on, it won't. And one of the things that the world is trying to shove down Christian's throat is that, no, 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 what you're saying is not light. It's actually darkness because you're not loving, you're hating. They're trying to flip it around. And what the Word of God is saying, no, 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 you've got it wrong. To love is to actually be the light that Christ has put in us. And to one of the things that happens is we show that we live by the light. What comes with the light? Peace, joy, love, grace, mercy, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It comes with the light. And people will see that and they will... But they, when, once you say one thing that they find offensive, they go, ah, you're a hateful, you're a bigot, you're a fascist, whatever word they want to throw at you. But this is the world we live in and we need to know what it is. The question we have before us, will we be the light in the darkness? Will we shine and shine brightly and boldly? Will we love people so much that we will share the truth of God's love and His Son sacrificed in wisdom and gentleness without shying away from the truth of the Word of God. How much do you love unbelievers? How much do you love them? Do you love them enough to tell them the truth? Or is your love limited to what may offend them? What is love? God's idea of love is sacrificial, unconditional, and serving. So if I allow your potential offense to limit my love, it's conditional. Can you see that? I know this is challenging. And I know that everything else you hear out there is contradicting what I'm saying. I know that. I hear it too. I see it too. I just choose to spend more time in the good news than the news. I choose to spend more time with God than with social media. I choose to spend more time with my wife and my children than the people who said they will raise them or educate them. Otherwise, someone else is going to raise them. If you don't teach your children to love Jesus, the world will teach them not to. It's just how it is. We need to be the light in the darkness. Okay. Some of you are going, when are we getting to Jonah? <laughs> All right. So many of you think you know the story of Jonah. And some of you will even say, you know, you were swallowed by a whale. But the Bible doesn't say that. It's just a great fish. But it's an incredible story. And there's so much that I can say about it. But I want to focus just on chapter 4, which is the last chapter of Jonah. There's four chapters, and in the fourth chapter we see the heart of Jonah. But I'm going to summarize the story for you. Jonah is a prophet. The only other place we read about Jonah is in 1 Kings with the reign of King Jeroboam. Jeroboam? Jeroboam. Oh, that's also like Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> 
we see that Jonah was there in that time period. It says that the word of the Lord came to him and he says, go to Nineveh, that great city. God calls it a great city, but he means it's a big city. It's a very big city, not a great city. Because he immediately says it's evil and it needs salvation. He says, go to them. And, um, and then we see that no, uh, Jonah decides to rather go to Tarshish. That's actually what the name is. It sounds like I'm lisping, but I'm not. I want to show you a map of where he was. He went down to Joppa to catch a boat to go to Tarshish, two and a half thousand miles away. Can you see how far that is? I didn't know it was that far. Let's see where's Nineveh. Nineveh is where modern day Iraq is, close to Mosul now. That's where he was supposed to go, 500 miles. He went on a journey for two and a half thousand miles to Tarshish. Was he in the will of God? No. You know what's, what caught my eye and my spirit? Three times it says that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of God. He was fleeing from the presence of God by getting on a ship. He was fleeing from the presence of God. That's why the storm came. And then on the ship, now the storm has come. The sailors are freaking out. It says that they are praying to their gods. They are Gentiles. They don't believe in the living God. Jonah is sleeping at the bottom of the boat. Like a... They start throwing stuff off the ship and, and then the captain comes and says, Hey, how can you sleep in a moment like this? And then they, they, they cast lots to see whose fault is it that there's a storm. They cast lots and it falls on Jonah. And they go, Hey, and then it looks like a real interrogation. You know when they put that light in your face and they go, Hey, who are you? Where are you from? What is your occupation? Who's your God? And he says, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, and, you know, I'm the reason that there's a storm. And they freak out. And they say, what should we do? He says, throw me overboard. He says that. Throw me overboard. The storm will stop. They, they immediately feel convicted. We can't do that because then we will kill you and then your blood will be on our hands. So they wait. The storm gets worse. Eventually they say, Lord, forgive us for what we're about to do. And they throw him overboard. The storm stops. The whole ship comes to, comes to God. They turn their lives around. They offer sacrifices to God. The whole ship gets saved from a reluctant prophet who didn't want to be there, who has a bad attitude. Now he's in the water. And God sends, he commissions a great fish to get Jonah. And he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And then the Bible records in Jonah 2, a prayer. It says, from the belly of the fish, Jonah has this prayer, where he kind of sort of repents, but asks that God will help him and that he will do what God has called him to do. And it says that then God caused the fish to vomit him out on dry land. Whoa. Imagine that. Now, I always thought wrongly, that he, the fish vomited him out on the beach by Nineveh. But Nineveh, as you can see on that map, is very deeply into land. It's close to a river, the Tigris River. But even if the fish swam up the whole way of the river, which is highly unlikely, and spit him out there, he'd still be a, quite a walk. But anyway, he gets out. He's not saying, God says again to him, go to Nineveh and tell them what I've put on your heart to tell them. He goes to Nineveh. It must have taken him quite some time. It says Nineveh. I can show you a picture of Nineveh. Just show them that of the city. It's quite beautiful. The previous one, I think. Yeah, that's the city of Nineveh. Great, beautiful, ancient city. It says it takes three days to walk from the one side to the other side. Three days. It says Jonah starts. He walks for one day. He stops and he preaches in Hebrew five words. In Hebrew, it's only five words. And it, if I can, let me say what the actual words are. Oh, it's, I don't have it yet. But he basically says to them, 
In 40 days, this whole place will be leveled with the ground. That's all he says. It says the whole city from that little sermon repents. They, they go in, into sackcloth and ash. Now, okay, these are Arabs, remember? Modern day Iraq. This is a Hebrew who just came from a fish's belly. Okay? He's probably not looking well or smelling well. He's walked a long journey. It's probably a bit nasty. Okay? He comes in there, walks for a day, he just looks around. He, start, he just says, 40 days, God will judge the city. There'll be nothing left. The people who hear him, that's not the whole city, but they hear him, they repent. It says the news gets to the king. The king immediately repents, sits in sackcloth and ash, and calls a whole um, fast for the whole nation. And they repent before God. And it says God relents of his plans for Nineveh. He forgives them, and he doesn't do what he was going to do. Then we get to chapter 4. So the city has been saved by the reluctant prophet. And it says in Jonah 4.1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. God just saved the whole city. And he's upset. So he prayed to the Lord. Listen to this prayer. Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. One who relents from doing harm. So what is that, a boomerang compliment? He's angry at God. And, but this reveals what was going on in his mind when he fled. We don't read in Jonah 1 why he fled. But here he reveals it. He's like, you're going to send me there. I'm going to preach to them. And you're just going to forgive them. And I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to Tarshish. That's what happened. He had reason to be afraid of the people of Nineveh because they were known as a violent people who conquered their enemies with fear. They started a thing where they would impale people on stakes to, to get fear into people. So they, you can argue that he was afraid, but he never here says that he was afraid to go. He says he didn't want to go because you know God is gracious and long-suffering and he will just forgive them and he doesn't want that. But God used him anyway with a five-word sermon. How incredible is that? He goes on to say, uh, You're the one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's like a soccer player. He's overreacting. It's like he's been... Someone bumped him on the shoulder and he falls to the ground and goes, ah, ah, stop it, Jonah. Then the Lord says to them, is it right for you to be angry? He doesn't answer. It just says that he goes and he sits on a hill and he looks at the city, waiting to see what God does. He's like, maybe they will sin tomorrow again and then he will destroy the city. Hmm. He builds himself a booth. I'm not going to read all of it, but God Causes a plant to grow over him, gives him shade. It says he's very happy with the shade. Then God sends a worm to kill the plant, the thing withers. Then it says he's exceedingly angry again. And he says again, oh, let me die. Jonah was a super emotional guy. Like, hectically emotional. And listen to this towards the end. God asked him, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, listen to this. You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. That last bit I'm confused by. God really cared about the cattle as well. But I want you to hear what God is saying. God did a miracle. He made a plant grow to give shade to Jonah and then he killed it. 
He didn't do it for his comfort. He did it to show him, to prove a point. And what should we take from this? Jonah, what did he do? He judged the city of Nineveh. He judged it. They should die. God, come, just bring your fire and brimstone. Take care of them. What does God do in this case? He takes pity on them. And he gives them a chance. Through a prophet who we probably would not have chosen. But God did. Jonah ends like this. It doesn't go on to say that he changed his mind or that, you know, he repented. Nothing. It just ends with the word cattle or livestock. But what we need to see from this story, on the one hand, even if we have the wrong attitude or make mistakes along the way, God can still work through us. All right? I think that's encouraging. But how much better will it be if we know what God is up to and we are obedient to His Word and we lovingly and passionately move forward with Him? Imagine what can happen then. But we can know that God can miraculously use the little we do like a five-word sermon and change the city. Amen? But what we also need to see is that when it, is, when it goes about unbelievers, it's not for us to judge. It's not for us to judge what should happen to them, what should not happen to them. They were not a church. They were not a godly city. They were a pagan city. And God was trying to save them, giving them one more chance. We have around us a city. Yes, there are Christians, but there are many pagans, people who don't believe in God, many unbelievers. There are many people who think they are Christians who are not, who are actually also unbelievers. We, the harvest is ripe. And we have a role to play in bringing the light in the darkness. What are we going to do? Can you see that if you have an attitude of hatred towards the world for their sin, you will struggle to reach them effectively? Can you see that? The better approach is to love them with the truth to get them into the kingdom of God. That is what we get from the story of Jonah. And what we get from Paul and everything I read earlier on that is that we should, be, we should be fervently believing what the Word of God says. And we should let the, the light of God shine brightly in us so that we can be the light to the world. Amen? All right. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do in our area? How do we change this? I know being the light in the darkness is not easy. If it was easy, everyone would be real Christians. The darkness is thick. It's overwhelming. It can be intimidating and downright scary. It can threaten us with social cancellation and boycotting. And it can even put our lives in physical danger. The question before all of us is whether we have really died to self and if we are really crucified with Christ. And if we have chosen to die to self and pick up our cross and follow him daily, it's easy to say, I'm born again. It's easy to say, yes, I pick up my cross daily. It's easy to say those things. It's a whole other ballgame to do it when it matters. We need Jesus. We need his Holy Spirit. And we need to stay humble and we need to stay obedient and when he says go, go. At the same time, when he doesn't say go, don't go. There are battles that I've wanted to fight that God said no. Or he just didn't speak. And I really wanted to fight the battle. And God said no. Or he didn't say anything, so I stayed away. But when you know that you know, God said yes, this time, go. You have to go. Otherwise, we are disobedient. Do you want to be a reluctant prophet who God uses anyway? <laughs> or do you want to be in line with what he's doing? Let us all stand together and let's take this word. Let's make it our own. And let's get active in how we respond to this. In one of the scriptures from those chapters we read, I didn't actually read it today out loud, but 
Paul says to the church of Corinth, he says to them that the, the Word is not what it's about. The Word that's spoken is not what it's about, but it's about the power of God. All right? I am so encouraged that in this church, we have seen the power of God move in people's lives, being set free from sin, from sickness, marriages restored, families restored. The power of God has moved and is moving and will keep moving. Amen. And I want to trust right now that God will come in this moment, that His Holy Spirit will come in His mighty power and that He will come and heal, that He will come and set free and that He will come and restore everything that needs to be restored. The kingdom of God is in the power of God. So with that, if you are here today, maybe your first decision that you stand before is whether you want to give your life to Christ completely. I grew up as a Christian in a Christian home, but as a 16-year-old, I realized that my, my parents don't make me a Christian. The fact that I go to church doesn't make me a Christian. I need to make a decision. And that's what changed my life. So I want to make an invitation. If you're here today and you realize, man, I've just been going through the motions. I don't really, I haven't really given my life to Christ. If that's you today, if you want to make a decision to follow Christ, would you please put up your hand? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Anyone else? Anyone else? This is your moment. Thank you, Jesus. If you're here today and you want to recommit your life, if you realize, man, I've been, I've been lukewarm in my Christianity, or I've compromised, or, you know, I look at that list in 1 Corinthians 6, and I'm guilty. Not just of doing it once or twice, but indulging in it. And God is saying to you right now, the Holy Spirit is saying to you, you can be free. You can be free of those things. You want to recommit your life and you want to be free from sin and the consequences of sin. If that's you, please put up your hand. Please put up your hand and say, Lord, today I want to be set free. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If you've put up your hand, I want to invite you to come to the front here. It's not about this little space. It's about what happens when you step out. It's about what happens when you, when you make a public declaration. Please come to the front, everybody who put their hands up. We're going to pray for you and we're going to trust God to move in His power. Don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed. This is not about anything else but you and God. Come to the front. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, let's encourage them as they come to the front. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. God is good. God is merciful. God is love. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to start with giving our lives to Jesus. All right. If this is your first time, we're all going to pray with you. All right. So let us close our eyes and focus on Jesus. Amen. Let's pray after me. Lord Jesus, today I choose to give my life to you. I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I know that you are my Savior. So today I come humbly before you and I give you my life. I lay it down. I lay my will down and I say, this is me. Forgive me of my sins. I repent of all of them. And from today, I want to live for you with all that I am, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right. For those who are here who want to recommit their lives, or if you know there's this thing that's holding me back, there's this sin that's holding me back, I want to pray for recommitment and then I want to pray for that. So let us stretch out our faith. Let's just focus on Jesus. Just say after me, Lord Jesus, today I want to come home. I have gone off the path. 
and I repent of that. I'm sorry. I want to run back to you and give my life to you completely. Thank you for forgiving me. Lord, I accept your forgiveness. And from today, I want to walk as your child in every area of my life. In Jesus' name. All right, I want to take, I want to ask all of us to take a moment and to just bring our sins before God. This is not about guilt and shame. This is about conviction and freedom. Amen. Sin leads to death. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross leads to life and life in abundance. So I want you to come before God and I want you to just lay everything down and just say, Lord, I repent of these sins. Forgive me. Wash me clean. Make me new. Restore what I have damaged and help me to walk the way that you've called me to walk in holiness, in purity, and in strength. I give you my life. Thank you for forgiving me. And now let's ask Holy Spirit to empower us to live the lives God has called us to do. Let us all say, Holy Spirit, help us to live the life of holiness that you have called us to live. We submit to you and we choose to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to know that Jesus' work on the cross was a finished work and that you are free in Him. And in Christ Jesus, you are free, you are sanctified, you are purified. But I know it happens. Sometimes we fall back and then we feel that that's all taken away. And I want you to know it's not. You don't start at square one. But you have a good Father to whom you can run. And you have us to help you. Let's not get stuck in ruts. Let's live free and let's live for Jesus. Amen? Amen. I love you guys so much. Thank you so much. Let's give God a big shout of praise. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Key Church podcast, Message of the Week. I trust that you had a life-changing encounter with God that will help you to align with His purposes so that you can be one step closer to reigning in life. And may you be inspired to share this with others. Have a great week and remember to listen again next week or you can catch us live online or come visit us in person. May God bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you and your loved ones. God bless you. Bye-bye.